0: Straight talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Israel News Talk Radio. Straight talk from Israel. You're listening to the Jay Shapiro Show.
1: Hello again, this is Jay Shapiro. I want to say a few words about Israel's democracy, or perhaps I should call it the misrepresentation of Israel's democracy. Four years ago, after hours of debate, the Knesset passed by a vote of 62 to 55, with two abstentions, a law codifying Israel's status as the national home of the Jewish people. The bill was first introduced in 2011 by the Kadima Party, which is a centrist party, not left, not right, and the so-called nation-state bill joined more than a dozen so-called basic laws that now function as Israel's unwritten constitution. Its 11 paragraphs mostly restrain long operative principles of Israel democracy. Hebrew is the national language. Hatikvah is the national anthem. The menorah is the national emblem. Jerusalem is the nation's capital. And Israel is where the self-determination of the Jewish nation is exercised. One might find it surprising that such generalities would provoke a global outcry. Then again, Israel and selective indignation seems to go together like peanut butter and jelly. Criticisms run the gamut from saying the law is unnecessary and provocative to saying it's racist and anti-democratic. The Israeli left, in alliance with Israel's minority Arabs and Druze, has marched in the streets. Institutions of the Jewish diaspora have called for the law's repeal. They have found themselves rather uneasily on the same side of the debate as anti-Zionist and Israel-haters in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip and Muslim capitals and in the European Union and the United Nations. Turkey's uh, uh, President Erdogan said the spirit of Hitler, which led the world to a great catastrophe, has found its resurgence among Israel's leaders. Now, leaving aside similar anti semites like Erdogan, reasonable people and friends of Israel may disagree about the necessity and utility of a nation-state law. Such disagreement, however, has to be based on facts. And facts have been sorely lacking in recent discussions of Israel, thanks primarily to an uninformed, biased, and one-sided media. Major journalistic institutions have become so wedded to a pro-Palestinian narrative in which Israel is part of a global trend toward nationalist authoritarian populism, that they have abdicated any responsibility for presenting the news in a dispassionate and balanced manner. The shameful result of this inflammatory coverage is the normalization of anti-Israel rhetoric and policies and widening divisions between Israel and the diaspora. For example, back in July 2018, an article in the Los Angeles Times described the nation-state law as granting an uh, an advantageous status to Jewish-only communities. But that is false. The bill contains no such language. Yet, the Los Angeles Times has not corrected a piece that contained the error. In 2018, New York Times' David Halfinger How- and Isabel Kirshner wrote that the Knesset's incendiary move has been denounced by centrists and leftists as racist and anti-democratic. Why? Because the law omits any mention of democracy or the principle of equality. But the reason that is so is because these things are covered by other basic laws we have already codified the democratic and egalitarian character of Israel, including two laws dealing especially with human rights. The Times said that the nation-state law also promotes the development of Jewish communities, possibly aiding those who seek to advance discriminatory land allocation policies. And you put the emphasis on the word possibly, because there's nothing in the law to provide such aid. Indeed, indeed, and this is the fact, the nation state law contains no additional rights for Jews. And the law does not promulgate any fewer rights for Arabs. These people in the Times went on to say that the law downgrades Arabic for the official language, the one with a special status. But then, far into that piece in the Times, the writers also acknowledge it is largely symbolic slights, as the subsequent clause says this clause did not harm the status given to the Arabic language before this law came into effect. Back in 2018, a front page article in the Times was headlined, Israel Picks Identity Over Democracy, More Nations May Follow. That was the headline. This is a funny way to characterize the Lord as one majority support following parliamentary procedure of a democratically elected legislative body, the Knesset. Such such through-the-looking-glass type of analysis uh, riddled this piece in the Times as well the additional four news articles in the Times and four op-ed, op-eds the time published at that time in a matter of right, uh, these pieces in these pieces, democracy is defined as a result favored by the New York Times editorial board and this was national self-understanding is irrev- an irrev- irrev- irrevocable conflict with its democratic form of government. The they start this column in the Times. Started with a uh, anecdote relating how David Ben Gurion emerged from retirement in July 1967 and insisted that Israel governed territories that it had conquered after repelling the invasion of three Arab armies a month earlier. Unfortunately, for the, for the writer in the Times, this is a dramatic episode it seems to be apocryphal. Historian Martin Kramer, after exhaustive research, concluded there's no evidence Benguian warned Israel that their victory had sown the seeds of self-destruction. No, that was true in July 1967 and later. The questionable claims did not stop there. The Times said the quality of Israeli democracy has been declining steadily, since the early 2000s. The article continued, an era that just happens to coincide with the rise of Israeli statesmen whose politics the political scientists find detestable. The Times article also mentioned a wave of horrific violence known as the Second Intifada which killed far more Palestinians than Israelis and included shocking terrorist activities and previously sate safe Israeli enclaves. So you have to ask yourself, where did this violence come from? Who committing this shocking terrorist act? The New York Times doesn't say. Deny, denying Arab agency is a longstanding habit of Israel's critics. And that is what's noteworthy about these often hysterical reaction to the passing of the nation state law by Israel. The story used the legislation merely as a jumping off point for larger complaints about Israel's Jewish character. For these writers, especially in the New York Times, this isn't a debate over the Israeli flag, it's a debate over Jewish nationalism as a proxy for the Israeli Palestinian conflict. Back in 2018, uh, there was in the Time magazine, published an article called Ideas, in which a woman named Marlene Prussia wrote, it's not clear that the equality outlined in the founder's vision statement remains a goal. It's certainly far from reality. In other words, this writer is claims that Israel's new nation state law violates Israel's declaration of independence. If furthermore, this writer in the time wrote, the new law provides legal teeth for discrimination that's currently de facto and essentially making discrimination constitutional. This is all not true. None of this is true. Rather than speculate, the nation-state bill's opponents might, should have tried explaining the actual text, which, which says absolutely nothing about discrimination. Back at that time, a uh, professor at Northwestern University, Eugene Kontorovich, said that during the episode of the Jewish Leadership Conference at that time, anything can be perverted, but but that does not mean that everything is perverse. Truth is that democracy is thriving in Israel. So many of the values one normally associates with what the New York Times called this uh, democracy. The last time I checked, this is the only country in the Middle East where you can attend an LGBT pride parade. The uh, one of the critics of the nation-state law, uh, Noah Ephron. He pointed out that the proportion of women serving in the Knesset is higher than the United States Congress or the average European Union parliament. There is universal health care. Alone among Western democracies, labor unions have grown bigger and stronger in Israel over the past decades. Minority citizens are guaranteed the same rights as Jewish citizens. It's precisely these achievements that are sustained by Israel's Jewish character and tradition. The um, The New York Times back then quoted a historian at Ben Gurion University, who said rather dismissively, uh, "Mr. Netanyahu, who was the um, at time he at time he was the prime minister, Mr. Netanyahu and his colleagues are acting aware still in the battle of 1948." Judging by the fallacious paranoid fever and at times bigoted reaction to the nation-state bill back in 2018, uh, it seems that we have good reason to believe that Israel is still in the Battle of 1948 and still defending itself against assaults on the very idea of a Jewish state. I bring this up now because we are essentially in the Hebrew New Year And uh, there are still people attacking Israel. The Jews have no right to have a nation state. So I remind the uh, listeners of the controversy that occurred back in 2018 when Israel passed the nation state law. And uh, it's something we have to remind ourselves quite often, I'm afraid, that uh, the nation state law does not deny rights to anyone living in the state of Israel, which of course includes the Arabs. But apparently uh, the Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, it is uh, maybe a good and a proper time to remind ourselves of who we are as a nation. That's why I uh, reminded the listeners of what was said back in uh, 2018. Switching to another timely subject, millions of American students are starting new academic years at colleges across the United States. Alongside their formal education, they'll be exposed to organizations promoting a wide range of social causes, and for the Jewish Jewish students, this also means a high likelihood of being harassed by people spewing anti-Israel hate speeches under the disguise of pro-Palestinian activism. While Jewish organizations tend to focus on the impact this has on Jewish students, it's time we shifted our focus to the 98% of non-Jewish Americans who hear and often believe these harmful and false claims. Make no mistake, slowly but surely, Israel's value to Americans is dropping. The latest Pew research shows that older Americans express much more favorable views toward Israel than younger ones, with the gap significantly larger among American adults who identify as Democrats. These trends are a strategic threat to those who care about Israel and its relationship with the United States. However, unlike other challenges that have a clear wake-up call, this one is ongoing and incremental, making it extremely hard to change truth of the matter is we have to wake up now and we have to take ac- action now. Besides the Jewish students, the anti-Israel and often anti-Semitic sentiment on campuses affects the lives of the rest of the entire student body. As they grow up and take key positions in society, in business and government, social activism and more, these misconceptions will continue to shape them and the world around them. Israel is a thriving democracy. Its Arab citizens serve in the parliament and on the Supreme Court, and they're often the head of hospitals. It elected its first female prime minister in the 1960s. The United States has yet to do the same, and members of the country's LGBT community can proudly march in the streets or openly serve in senior military positions. These are some of the most basic facts about Israel, yet most Americans are ignorant and clueless about them. Moreover, many younger Americans who were the future leaders are completely misinformed and disoriented thanks to the intentional disinformation campaigns of the anti-Israel groups who have harnessed social media to tarnish Israel's name. They do this by creating symmetry between the star of David and the German swastika, the the Nazi swastika, and by spreading lies and blood libels. The aim of these people is not only to hurt Israel, but make Israel one that's bad for business. That's epitomized by the boycott, sanction, and divestment movement. Truth of the matter is, The leadership of the American Jewish community has allowed the vast majority of the American public to remain ignorant about Israel. Many people thought that if they educated young Jews, they would be Israel's best ambassadors. However, as the past 25 years has proven, without actively engaging the general public, the opposite is true. Younger Jews are affected more by their peers and anti-Israel social media than the other way around. The truth of the matter is, it's time for the Jewish leadership in the United States to wake up before it's too late. For decades, communal organizations, professionals and lay leaders and phil- 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 philanthropists have dedicated time and resource to educate people within the community, the Jewish community. In essence, we've spent most of our efforts targeting 2% of the American population and neglect to carve out messaging, programming, and engagement for the 98% of the people around us. Like any brand, Israel's name evokes certain thoughts and emotions. When those are positive, people want to relate to Israel. And when they're negative, the public tries to distance itself from Israel. The truth of the matter is, it may sound odd, but we should start treating Israel like a brand. And, like any marketing professional and any marketing professional will tell you, you have to run routine day to day awareness campaigns as well as crisis management campaigns if and when they're needed. Branding campaigns aren't always easy, but when they work, they're irreversible. It's not only true for Coca Cola or Nike, but also for social causes. American examples from Lifetime include. The United Negro College Fund had a, a, a slogan: "A mind is too, a terrible thing to waste." Uh, and LGBTs have a slogan: "Out of the closet and into the streets." Thirty-five years ago, the American Jewish community had its own tour de force of social activism under the iconic "Let My People Go" for support of Soviet Jewry. Well, how will young Americans? View Israel. I'm talking about the 98 percent are not Jewish. How will they relate to Israel? Will they think of it as strategic asset or a threat? That is a mission now for the Jewish leadership to win the battle of public opinion. Educational programs are not enough. You want to tell the truth about Israel. You have to build messaging that will reach hundreds of millions of people. Communal organizations must join forces to recruit the best storytellers and copywriters, savvy campaigners. The the true story is heard, and it must be heard, and seen by every American. The Jewish community has to gather and work with others to join before it's too late. The uh, president of the Palestinian Authority went to the UN, made a terrible, vicious, and attack against Israel. And then uh, several days later, he sent a New Year's greeting to the president of Israel, which the president accepted. Uh, my own feeling is that the president should not have accepted it, but I have to assume there are all kinds of political and diplomatic reasons why he did. However, I want to say a few for, um, things about the Israel, Israel, Israeli-Palestinian peace. In order to forge an Israeli-Palestinian peace, all the parties must sincerely want it and be, be capable of carrying out a plan for reconciliation. It's clear that today's Palestinian dictatorships lack the ability to make peace among themselves. So uh, how can they could govern their own people or commit to peace with Israel. While Israelis pray for peace, Palestinian leaders still pray for Israel's destruction. Neither the Palestinian Authority in Judea and Samaria, if they call the West Bank, nor the Islamic terror group Hamas in Gaza, has held elections since 2006. And the two factions are battling one another in a vicious power struggle. Both, on the other hand, have one thing in common. They refuse to recognize the Jewish state or to accept Israeli offers of peace. So we have this question, what are the facts? While Israel with the United States made generous land for peace offers to the Palestinians, In 2001 and 2008, neither of the uh, two major Palestinian groups have accepted Israel's offers or even Israel's right to exist. What's more, both the Palestinian Authority and Hamas governments are in disarray squandering precious resources, waging a bitter internecine war. Until these warring Arab factions reconcile and accept Israel as their neighbor, it's impossible to imagine a peace agreement with them or among them. Following Israel's repulsion of the five attacking Arab armies in 1967, Arabs in Palestine formed the Nationalist Palestine Liberation Organization, the PLO, under Yasser Arafat, who is actually an Egyptian. Arafat inspired what was called the First Intifada, a terrorist guerrilla effort against Israel, which ended with the 1993 Oslo Peace Accords. Under those accords, the Palestinian Authority, known as the PA, would run Arab parts of Gaza and Judea, Samaria, while Israel has controlled the remaining parts until the Arab-Israel conflict can be resolved through peace negotiations. After Israel's complete withdrawal from Gaza, the terror group called Hamas won the Palestinian legislative elections in 2006, then seized control of Gaza from the Palestinian Authority. Since 2007, Hamas has ruled Gaza as an Islamic fiefdom, and the Palestinian Authority and Hamas remain fierce enemies to this very day. Secular dictatorship is what the Palestinian Authority is. While grounded supposedly in Muslim values, the Palestinian Authority has always been secular. Following Arafat's death in 2004, Mahmoud Abbas was elected president of the Palestinian Authority for a four-year term. Yet, he's held the grip of power ever since. Today's Palestinian Authority is rife with corruption. Its economy is effectively bankrupt. It suffers from unemployment almost 30%, and without foreign subsidies, it would collapse. Despite its charter under the Oslo agreement to make peace with Israel, the Palestinian Authority has remained dedicated to wresting all of the Holy Land from Jewish control. It has never recognized Israel as a Jewish homeland, has demanded all Arab refugees of Israel's War of Independence in 1948, which uh, they're including their descendants is about 5 million people, they demanded they return to Israel, which would, of course, destroy the Jewish state democratic- demographically. Now, they tried to do this under the sponsorship of President Clinton in 2001, George W. Bush in 2008, and they offered the Palestinians at that time, about 98% of Judea and Samaria, as well as a capital in East Jerusalem, in return for peace. Yasser Arafat turned down the first offer. Mahmoud Abbas rejected his second offer. And since 2014, Abbas has refused to negotiate with Israel. There was also Hamas. Uh, which is an Islamic dictatorship, an outgrowth of Egypt's Muslim Brotherhood, which also spawned al-Qaeda. Hamas is a fundamentalist Islamic organization. Its charter calls for the conquest of all Palestine, including present-day Israel, and in its place, established an Islamic state. Because of Hamas's brutal use of suicide bombings and rocket Attacks on Jewish civilian population, it has declared a terrorist organization by the United States State Department and also by the European Union. While Hamas won power after the Palestinian parliamentary elections in 2006, it has refused to reject violence and in fact took violent control of Gaza. Today, Hamas rules Gaza brutally, according to strict Sharia law. Hamas has launched three wars against Israel, most recently in 2014. Because of Hamas's belligerence, Gaza is currently under sanctions from Egypt, Israel, and the Palestinian Authority itself. No. While the Palestinian Authority and Hamas have made many attempts at reconciliation, they all have failed, and relations between them remain poisonous. The people of Gaza suffered an unemployment rate of 44%, just four hours of electric- electricity on a daily basis, and a dysfunctional economy. If a lot of these Palestinians come into Israel to work every day, they would be unable to feed their families. Hamas currently received some financial support from Iran and also from Turkey, much of which is used to continue the terror war against Israel. And as I said You can't make peace with someone who does not want to make peace with you. These are the facts. And now at the beginning of the Jewish New Year, I think we have to remind ourselves. There's all kind of words. I see all kind of articles in the newspaper about a two-state solution. It makes no sense whatsoever. As long as the educational system under the Hamas and under the Palestinian Authority is geared toward the destruction, teaching children the destruction of the Jewish state, there is absolutely no possibility of peace. There's no possibility of a two-state illusion unless and until they change their educational system. And therefore, even if they change their educational system today, starting in kindergarten, you have to wait another 25 to 30 years until these graduates of a cleaned-up system, are, who have been not been collected that the destruction of Israel is their main goal, there's absolutely no chance of any kind of peace for the next the next at least three decades. It's a terrible thing to realize that that's the way I see it. I don't know what the solution is, but I it's important that people are aware of the reality on the ground. I see all kind of articles right before Rosh Hashanah, I, uh, the Jewish New Year, I read all kind of articles in the papers, both the Hebrew papers and the English papers, about a two-state solution that is nothing more than a pipe dream. Two, you, change the educational system under the Palestinian authority and Hamas, you can forget about a two-state solution for at least 30 years. These, I believe, are the facts on the ground and something at the beginning of the Jewish New Year we have to know and act accordingly. And these it's, it's very important that people, especially diplomats, don't live on daydreams. They have to treat things the way they really are. Now I want to change the subject very slightly. Uh, in a sense, I just spoke about the Palestinian Authority and the Hamas. I want to say something about the Arab parties here in Israel. The uh, one of the Arab parties uh, was part of the coalition of the government that it's now going to be replaced by the election in November. But I want to say a few words about the party. Many people were completely surprised by the recent developments among the Arab political parties in Israel. One is called BALAD, B-A-L-A-D in English, a party with strong nationalist Palestinian orientation, and it split off from another group called the Joint List, which now consists of two parties. One is called Hadash, H-A-D-A-S-H. It's a non-Zionist party that promotes Arab-Jewish cooperation. And a Taal, T-A-A-L, an Arab party with a moderate nationalist orientation. Raam, R-A-A-M, is an Arab party with a conservative and religious orientation. They're all going to run separately in the upcoming election. So you have three separate Arab lists will be running in the upcoming election on November 1st, which is a return to what used to be the three-way structure of Arab politics that was seen in the decade prior to the formation of what was called the Joint List in 2015. Now, to understand these developments in Arab politics, We have to look at two levels of these politics. First, the political configuration of the parties representing the Arab population in Israel. And second, the political behavior of the Arab voters in Israel. These are two levels that impact one another. However, the current situation differs from the past. So I'm trying to Explain this to the listeners when you understand the election. till 10 years ago, the people were led by the, by the parties. The parties determined their own political lineups or elections, and the public chose which party to vote for. Today, it's the public that determines the general political direction. The parties react to the public's wishes, partly on the basis of surveys, and then determine their political makeup. The Arab parties find themselves in a dilemma common to national minority parties that have to face two tests, the test of relevance and the test of legitimacy. Relevance is determined by the party's size. The more votes it gains, the more members it sends to the parliament, the Knesset, the greater its relevance in the coalition-building process. (coughs) Legitimacy is determined by the extent to which a party's political orientation matches the political mainstream of the general public in the country. This is a difficult test for minority parties that need to get a stamp of approval from the main ruling parties indicating that they are worthy of being a political partner. In Israel, The ongoing political deadlock between Likud-led Netanyahu camp and the so-called change camp led by Yair Lapid only reinforces the relevancy of the small parties, such as the Arab parties, in the mathematics of building a coalition. The question is whether the latter of the Arab parties are viewed as legitimate parties by the big Jewish parties. Ra'am has already proved itself a reliable political partner, but was part of the Bennett Lapid government, has become a legitimate partner, partner for future coalitions. Now, Hadash Tau may possibly be relevant as a partner in a future coalition, but his preconditions regarding the Palestinian issue for recommending a candidate as prime minister make it very difficult for Hadash Tal to pass the test of legitimacy among the Jewish parties. At present, Balad has not passed either of the tests. It explicitly calls to abolish the Zionist nature of the state and the fact that the polls show it is not expected to pass the threshold proved that it neither passes the test of legitimacy nor the test of relevance. In other words, you have a par- an Arab political party Calling for, uh, legally a political party here in Israel, calling for the uh, for the um, uh, that calling that Israel should not be a Jewish state. Imagine having, imagine something in American Congress having a party in American Congress calling for uh, the, for the destruction of the United States. That's what it amounts to. So an analysis of the current state of the Arab parties only reveals part of the picture. To complete the analysis, you have to examine Arab voters' political behavior. In the most recent elections, voter turnout in Arab communities stood a little bit over 44%. In other words, half the Arab voters were eligible to vote didn't vote. In-depth surveys conducted in recent weeks have shown the expected voter turnout in the upcoming election, November 1st, will be around the 40% mark. So a clear picture has emerged in the past two decades. Voter turnout among Arabs has declined steadily in what seems to be an irreversible trend. A new generation has grown up in Arab society, simply become accustomed not to participate in elections. Israel's a a democracy, Arab citizens can vote, half of them choose not to. It may yet be that Ballard's decision to field an independent list in the upcoming election could actually lead to an increase in voter turnout. Many of Ballard's supporters who had been undecided about whether to vote have now woken up and proudly declared that they intend to participate in votes for their party. The Arab Party's election campaigns have not gotten off any optimistic start. However, the very fact that Arab voters now have a choice of three parties to present three different alternatives in the Israeli parliamentary game may breathe new life into the campaigns and encourage Arab voters to go to the polls. So what you have right now is half the Arab citizens who are eligible to vote do not vote. And and at least one of the three parties is an anti-Zionist party. How, how it's legitimate for a party like that to run for the Knesset, I don't know. But these are the facts. So what, I, what I tried to do in this last few minutes was to give the uh, listeners an idea of what the Arab parties are like. So if and when they, the uh, Arab parties... Uh, or uh, get into the next Knesset, uh, we'll have to see how they act. Whether they they act more like Palestinians than they act like Israelis, or will they be willing to represent the Arabs in Israel as part of the Israeli makeup? That's a it's a tough question. We don't know the answer now. But I wanted to give the uh, listeners have an idea of what the Arab parties are like. It's sort of a look under the headlines. So uh, when the elections are held and we see the results, the listeners will have an understanding of what the Arab parties are doing. Um, I'll be back after the break.
2: You think you
0: can get real news about Israel from major news sources located far away from Israel? Think again. Get it from the source. Israel News Talk Radio, straight talk from Israel.
3: One minute of Torah. In our poetic Torah portion this week, Ha'azinu, the Jewish people are referred to as the lot of God's inheritance. An additional meaning to the word used for lot in this verse is rope. Chabad philosophy explains that the Jewish soul is compared to a rope that connects God above with His beloved nation down below. This rope is comprised of 613 strands, corresponding to the 613 Divine Commandments. When we fulfill the commandments, our bond with the Almighty is solid. If, God forbid, we break one of the commandments, we snap a thread of our divine connection, weakening our bond with our source of life. There is hope, however. When a physical thread is cut, it can always be retied. In fact, the place where the thread is retied is now the strongest part of the thread. Additionally, when the two pieces are retied, automatically this brings the ends of the rope closer together. With Yom Kippur in the air and the time of reflection and repentance upon us, we can use this metaphor as encouragement when recalling our sins of this past year. Every single misdeed is now an opportunity to strengthen our commitment and bond with our Father in Heaven. With your entire men of Torah, this is Chav You're back with
1: Jay Shapiro. I want to say a few words about a subject that uh, somehow won't go away. It's called the uh, Two-State Solution. And I saw someone we refer to it as the two-state solution delusion, which it really is. Uh, our prime minister went to the UN last week, and he got up in front of the General Assembly. He announced his vision for solving the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, the two-state solution. Now, many countries uh, clapped and lauded the. Uh, Lapid, and saying that, including the United States, a policy recommendation based on an illusion, which this is, is unlikely to go anywhere. The idea that Jewish and Arab states will coexist peacefully is widespread in contemporary academic and political circles, but these all ignore the reality on the ground. Even the Muslim countries around us have come to the conclusion that hanging their relationship with Israel on the Palestinians in a two-state solution is a waste of time and they can get more for themselves by simply treating Israel as another state in the Middle East. Unfortunately, for several reasons, a peaceful outcome for the two-state solution paradigm is likely to emerge soon. The uh, Palestinian Arab and the Zionist national movements are not close to reaching any kind of compromise, uh, particularly from the Palestinian side, and not only that, the Palestinians have proven themselves unable to build a state. For most Israelis, the Oslo Interim Agreement back in the nineteen nineties amounted to the beginning of separating from Palestinians, a process that they thought would eventually lead to partition and to two states living in peace with each other. The Palestinian Authority was supposed to take over territories the Israelis would evacuate and thus fulfill the national aspirations of the Palestinians. Assuming, something that is very interesting, that the uh, Palestinians have national aspirations. In my opinion, their aspiration is to kill the Jews and get rid of the Jewish state. But they assumed at the time that the Palestinians had national aspirations. They would provide law and order and they prevent terrorism against Israel. The Palestinian Authority was also expected to negotiate a permanent settlement, bringing about a historic compromise between what's considered two national movements. Yet, despite everything that was tried, all the efforts supported by other countries, primarily the United States, this envisioned peace process failed to reach anything in anything near a comprehensive agreement. The attitude of the Palestinians and the attitude of the Israelis on the core issues what are the core issues? Jerusalem, refugees, borders. D. The Palestinians and the Israelis are way far apart, and bridging the differences appears impossible. Israel's positions have hardened. Why? Because Israel started to be willing to compromise. Then there was an outbreak of the second Intifada in 2000, it was more than 20 years ago. The perception of a threat to Israel, presented by the Palestinians, has increased. Interestingly enough, Israeli support for a two-state solution has dropped considerably. Israel is less willing now to make concessions to the Palestinians. Recent polls indicate that only a third of Jewish Israelis support the two-state solution. Now, there was intermittent Palestinian terrorism from the West Bank and Gaza after the year 2000, and both of these places, particularly Gaza, have become launching pad with thousands of missiles aimed at Israel's civilians, and most Israelis simply stopped believing that the Palestinians are peace partners. At this juncture, Palestinian society, under the spell of a nationalist ethos and also Islamic, is unable to reach a compromise with Israel, which represents the Zionist movement, something they've been opposed to since the beginning. Polls in March of this year show Two-thirds of the Palestinians say Israel's an apartheid state, and 73% believe the Quran contains a prophecy about the destruction of the state of Israel. It's interesting, by the way, the uh, two-thirds of the Palestinians say Israel's an apartheid state and uh, try allowing a Jew to live in their area. That's interesting how they consider uh, The, uh, was it, I forget the old statement, the pedal calling the pot black. The proposition that statehood inevitably produces responsible behavior is doubtful, considering the number of leaders who have led their states into the abyss. Look what happened in Africa. All these uh, countries who got their independence from the European nations, and uh, a lot of the leaders uh, believed that uh, if you've given a state, you'll be responsible. It doesn't work that way. The current Palestinian education system and the official media in the Palestinian area incite hatred of Jews who are blamed for the Palestinian misfortune. Moreover, since 2000, the role model for young Palestinians has been the martyr, what they call the shaheed. Who's the martyr? Somebody who blows himself up among Jews and kills Jews. The Palestinian level of support for acts of violence against Israeli targets is absolutely staggering. Palestinian rejectionism won the day whenever a concrete partition was on the agenda. For example, when Israel's prime minister in 2000 was Ehud Barak, uh, also, Israel had a prime minister. That was in 2000. There was an Israeli prime minister uh, named oh, Ehud Ulmer in 2007. They both proposed a two-state solution, uh, solution. They even outlined the borders. Even the so-called moderate Palestinian leader, Mahmoud Abbas, rejects the idea that Israel should be a Jewish state. Any Palestinian state will be dissatisfied with its borders and will be intent on using force to attain its goals. What the Palestinians want is not a state. They want to destroy the Jewish state. Now you have Hamas too. They have a significant political clout and they view Israel's mere existence as some kind of religious sacrilege, and this therefore undermines any chance, if there ever ever was one, of reaching any kind of compromise. As the situation in Gaza makes clear, there's little reason to believe empowering radical Islamists will lead to a moderation. On, On the contrary, the continuous acts on Israel, acts of attack on Israel from Gaza, which is ruled by Hamas, indicate that the end of the occupation and the removal of the settlements are insufficient conditions, rending the conflict. And finally, these societies, Israel and the Palestinians, still have the energy to battle and more significantly to absorb the anguish required to achieve their political objectives. Nationalism inspires people to endure pain and hardship during national wars. Often the exhaustion of a society, rather than an opportunity for optimal compromise and end protracted conflict simply doesn't work. If pain is the most influential factor on the learning curve of societies, it seems that Israelis and Palestinians have not suffered enough to settle, particularly the Palestinians. The, The sober realization is that a Palestinian state, if it were formed, will not live peacefully next to Israel so that completely refutes the assumption of the two-state solution paradigm. They will not live in peace with Israel. Now there's another assumption, also quite important, and that is that the Palestinian national movement would accomplish the goal of having a state given the opportunity now, this assumption that they will build a state is divorced from reality on the ground. Not every ethnic group has state-building cap- capabilities. Given the opportunity for self-rule, the former Palestinian leader Yasser Arafat established a corrupt, inefficient, lawless an authoritarian political system. That's what he did, given the opportunity. Arafat's Palestinian Authority was sort of a Byzantine system in which he ruled very cleverly by divide and rule tactics. By allowing competition between leaders and agencies and even military groups, militias, he made himself the ultimate arbiter and dispenser of jobs and remuneration. This decentralized system eventually degenerated into chaos. Arafat was a genius in keeping his people divided so that he remained in power. The most critical area to building a state is monopoly on power. The Palestinian Authority is filled with armed militia and this defies central authority and preserves a fractured Palestinian community already made up of feuding families and clans historically. And by the way, another thing is that the Palestinian Authority has, and also in Gaza, it simply does not provide enough work for the people. And the, many uh, Palestinians must come into Israel to work every day, otherwise they'll die of starvation. That's another significant thing. So the Palestinian Authority is what you call a failed state. It's defined by a lack of monopoly on the use of force, the provision of only limited justice and services to the population, and the incapacity to maintain a legal and regulatory climate suitable to a modern economy. Abbas, Mahmoud Abbas, was elected president in 2005, and he is essentially a an Arafat in a suit. Abbas shived away from confronting the armed gangs. He failed to centralize the security services. The Palestinian Authority lost control of Gaza to Hamas. And has continuous difficulty dismantling militias in the territory under its control. Noteworthy is that even Hamas has failed to acquire a monopoly over the use of force in Gaza. There are armed organizations and clans that exist in Gaza. So in both areas, Gaza and the West Bank, no one is really in control. The understanding that the Palestinian Authority is not a functioning political entity has gradually penetrated international community's consciousness. Even the global media, which are mostly pro-Palestinian, are increasingly questioning the two-state formula's feasibility. The current international diplomatic discourse acknowledged the inability of the Palestinian Authority to serve as a peace partner for Israel. So that cuts down international support for state building. They're incapable of making a state at all. The expectations that the Palestinians will build a modern state, even with Western assistance, is simply not there. It's naive. It took centuries to build nation states in Europe. Except for Egypt, a historical entity possessing a level of political cohesion, attempts at state building in the Middle East have only partially succeeded. Iraq, Lebanon, Libya, Iran, uh, well, Iran doesn't count. But Iraq, Lebanon, Libya, Iraq, Somalia, and Yemen are all examples of political entities grappling with the problems of establishing central authority. And in other words, they're just gangs fighting with each other. There's no central authority, and certainly there's no modernity. Unfortunately, not every protracted conflict has an immediately available solution in the absence of a negotiated agreement between two responsible partners, the only way to deal with this is what they call conflict management. That the Israeli-Palestinian dispute requires not the creation of a Palestinian state, but some form of conflict management. So as such a strategy of conflict management is supposed to minimize the cost of armed conflict and preserve freedom of political maneuvering. The goal is to buy time, hoping the future may bring a better alternative. The lack of a clear end goal is not very inspiring. Yet this may be the best way to deal with a complex situation." In other words, Not only because of the politics and the fact that the Palestinian Authority was unable to form a state, and obviously they didn't really try, but they lost Gaza in an armed conflict, so the Arabs, Palestinian Arabs, can't get along with each other. And on top of all this is the fact that the educational system, starting from pre-kindergarten, is such that the people raised and educated under that system, and I've mentioned this previously, will never be able to make peace with Israel. Anybody who started kindergarten back at the time of the Oslo agreement, let's say we're four years or five years old at the time, is now an adult who has been trained from kindergarten that the state of Israel is, has no right to ex, exist and it is a good deal, it's good for you and you're straight to heaven if you kill Jews. That is what more than uh, almost, what is 1994. So we're talking uh, almost 30 years of this kind of education. So even if they change the education system in the Palestinian Authority today, It'll take another 25 years to produce a uh, population that's willing to make peace with Israel. So you have the lack of political stability. The fact that at this moment, both Gaza and the West Bank under the Palestinian Authority is composed of armed groups who don't get along with each other. On top of this, you have a an educational system that uh, simply is not preparing for peace with Israel. And that is the reality of the situation in the Middle East. So the the two-state solution is, as I said at the beginning, a delusion. I think that one of the problems that we have, a sort of a subtle under-the-cover problem, is the fact that there's a lot of money involved. The leadership of the Palestinian Authority gets a ton of money from the European Union uh, and uh, from the UN and from the United States. So the leadership is not interested in democracy. It's interested in lining its own pockets. and doesn't care anything about the people it is supposed to be raising to be at peace with Israel. These are the facts on the ground. Thanks for listening. Until next time Dave
0: Shapiro. Israel News Talk Radio. Straight talk from Israel. Israel News Talk Radio's chat room. Just click the orange button at the top of the Israel News Talk Radio dot home page. Log in as yourself or an anonymous guest and join in on the fun. You'll meet other listeners from all over the world who listen to Israel News Talk Radio, and you can make new friends. Israel News Talk Radio's chat room. It's the closest you can get to being in the studio with us.
2: We love listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Where can you get the inside news on Israel?